Titus is all about when the gospel is applied to the church, when the church lives out the gospel. It is beautiful in the eyes of a watching world, and that is the greatest missionary strategy there ever was. This whole little book, this compact book, is all about how the church can shine, how it can be uh, beautiful in a godless culture. Um, last week in Titus 1, 5 to 16, we talked about applying the gospel to how the church is led. We talked about godly leaders and how when uh, the church appoints godly leaders, the church thrives. Uh, the, the last two chapters in Titus, we're going to talk about how we're going to apply the gospel to how we live. The idea is when Christians live out the gospel, when they apply the gospel to their lives, uh, the church becomes beautiful. So uh, it's real practical. If you've ever wanted a sign from God, what do you want me to do right now? Have you ever been like, what should I be doing right now in my life? Give me something practical, okay? Titus 2 is for you. All right, let's read the scriptures. We're going to read the whole, whole chapter. Pray and then uh, learn from the word. Here we go, Titus 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we, we ask um, that as we read this very uh, clear and direct and yet um, difficult and countercultural passage, we just ask for the humility to receive it and the grace to apply it that in Jesus name. Amen. So uh, I have never uh, done a yard project where I have not bitten off more than I can chew. There's always a little more than you bargain for whenever you try to do anything around the house. Uh, anyways, a couple weeks ago I was helping a buddy of mine um, build a little patio in his backyard. Okay, nothing crazy, no wood, it's just, it's just pavers on top of dirt. Or so I thought. All right. Uh, first, 
you have to, all you have to do, all right, is you have to dig a hole, fill it with limestone, put concrete pavers on top, right? Sounds easy. Not. Um, what no one tells you is that you have to dig a level hole, okay? So the hole has to be perfectly flat, and the limestone on top has to be perfectly flat. And uh, we, we, literally, we literally spent hours, like, and what we would do is we'd, uh, we'd tie a string around our fingers, all right, and put a level in the middle, and we'd pull it excruciatingly tight over the hole to see if it was level or not. And for seven or eight hours, it wasn't. Uh, finally, we got it. Long, long day, close to a heat stroke, right, like our question earlier. Um, but the thing that was interesting to me was to get, to get the patio level, you had to have a really tense line. Like, like so tense, like your finger is turning purple as you do it. Like you had to pull it really, really tight to have something straight and level. And um, the more I've walked with the Lord, the more I am beginning to realize that if we're going to have healthy walks with Jesus, if we're going to um, have level walks, if you will, there has to, there's going to be a lot of tension in our lives. There are, there are things in the scriptures, there are aspects to the Christian life that are tense, where, where your heart and mind are pulled into two different directions. Um, one that's really clear and easy uh, that I'll actually be preaching on next week is uh, that God is sovereign, all right, but people are responsible, right? Jesus says in the same breath that the Father reveals people, reveals himself to people, and he says, come to me, right? If we, if we, that, that, there's tension there, right? Uh, but the tension we're talking about today uh, is I think it's even easier uh, to get wrong is the tension between grace and godliness. So let me just describe what, what those two are and then talk about why it's a tension. So, so the Bible insists again, and we believe that the foundation of the Christian life and the foundation of the gospel is God's grace, his favor, the fact that, the fact that he loves sinners in spite of themselves. The fact that God, God sent Jesus, even after we rebelled against him, he sent Jesus to live and die in our place, so that if we just believe in him, we are freely forgiven. So this morning, right, this morning, wherever you are, right, however your life has looked this week, in an instant, you can be fully right with God, just as if you never sinned, just as if you always lived righteously, only by believing in Jesus. Your quiet times don't add to it. Your moral life doesn't add to it. Your obedience, your disciplines, they don't add a thing to grace, nothing. Uh, as Martin Luther said, you receive grace like the ground receives rain. You guys and myself, we are the sod in my backyard right now, okay? And you're getting sprinkled on. You don't do anything. You just receive it, okay? That's grace. It's the heart of our faith. Here's the tension. The Bible also says that the grace of God that saves us creates godliness in our lives, that this saving grace of Jesus that's given freely, that when it is truly received, when it's truly believed, it always produces godly habits and character. It changes us. It makes us holy. There's no such thing as faith that is not accompanied by works. There's tension there, right? Don't you feel it? Right? Just come to Jesus. You're 100% forgiven, right? Also, God's grace changes you. It must change you. It's easy to get wrong. Uh, don't you 
see how easy it is to get wrong. Um, you sin, you screw up, you blow it, you feel really guilty, you feel like God isn't going to forgive you, or you say to yourself, you know what, I'm hitting my quiet times every day this week. I got, I got to make it up, right? Or maybe you're, maybe you're like, yeah, well, Jesus saved me from my past, right? But now I kind of have to, like, earn my keep with the Lord, right? Kind of like a kid doing the chores, you know? Like, I got to be disciplined, I got to be in church, just to kind of maintain my relationship with God. Guys, if you're there, you're missing the tension. You're living like a legalist. You're, li- you're living like grace does not exist. On the other end, right, it's really easy to blow it uh, and to say, whew, good thing I'm forgiven. Not a big deal, right? It's easy to have pet sins that you toy with that aren't really a big deal. It's very easy to miss the tension. And Titus 2 uh, gives us this tension maybe the most clearly in all the scriptures that the grace of God, the unmerited favor of Jesus that is freely offered to you, that you receive just like a gift, that same grace trains you to be godly. It transforms you. All right, and Paul spends the, mo- the bulk of his time talking about what that transformation looks like in the various stages of life. And so what we're going to do is we're going to answer, we're going to ask three questions of this passage, okay? First is, what is the godliness that God requires? Okay, second, why must we have it? And third, how do we get it? Okay, and uh, in this first part, when we ask, what is this godliness? We'll just, we're going to go through the whole passage. Um, Paul talks about different stages of life. We'll focus on y'all's stage of life. Um, But here we go. First, what does this godliness look like? All right, Paul begins uh, with the guys. Verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, these three different words, all right, they're all a little bit different, but they give the picture of someone who takes, not themselves, right, but who takes their life very seriously, they, 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 take, they take life seriously. They're very intentional about their lives. They're sober-minded. They're serious. They're not scrolling on Facebook watching puppy videos all day, right? Or, uh, or laughing at stupid jokes or spending all their time vegging, okay? Um, now, I want to be clear here, okay? This, is, this, this passage is not a call to be, to be no fun, right? Uh, consider this quote by C.S. Lewis. This is in... Uh, the last battle, the last of the Chronicles of Narnia, again, required reading, I think, for any Christian. He says this, There is a kind of happiness and wonder that makes you serious. It is too good to waste on jokes. Maybe you guys have experienced that. Uh, when you are genuinely happy in the Lord and you have a well of life, and you've, there is a serious joy, and you can blow it on a dirty joke or a stupid movie or whatever. Um, but the idea here, okay, is that in the gospel, as they walk with Jesus, older men are to have this serious joy, this well of life with the Lord that enables them to take their lives seriously, to use their lives intentionally. They're also to be sound in faith, love, steadfastness. This word sound is all in Titus. It's in verse 2 or verse 1, sound doctrine. Healthy, the idea is just like a plant growing well, someone with a healthy body, right? But their faith, which is just trust in the Lord, their love, which is just a life that focuses on others, their steadfastness, the idea that they're consistent, they persevere, okay? Older men should be all those things. Um, 
And now you might be thinking, oh, so real quick before I forget this, uh, verse 3, notice it says older women likewise. So notice uh, if you girls are like, well, what about me? Actually, it means the same. Like likewise means that the women should be similar to the men in this regard. Okay. Um, but to, to the young guys, all right, maybe, maybe you're here thinking you're like, okay, Leon, that's a lot. You know, you got seriousness, you got love, you got, which, where do I start? All right. Look at verse, uh, look at verse six. Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. All right. If you want to, if you want to grow into godliness, if you want to grow uh, into a godly man, the place to start is self-control. And now this word uh, certainly means what we normally think about with self-control, you know, uh, self-controlled in purity, Right, self-control in the personal disciplines, self-control in you know how you live, how you eat, all those kind of things. Right, not watching 15 Netflixes in a row, right? th- th- those kind of things. Okay. Um, however, it, it adds a little bit of meaning to that, being self-controlled in your your thinking and your heart, letting nothing master you, being mastered only by desire to please Jesus, keeping your desires under control, keeping your state of heart under control, keeping the way you think about the Lord under control. So guys, in a culture that has zero self-control, right, the place to start into godliness, the place God would have you begin in this growth and grace is self-control. Begin to master your life or begin to let your life be mastered by something other than your desires. Stop saying that first thing that comes out of your mouth. All right, stop being glued to your screens practice self-control and girls i just uh want to say this all right what are you looking for and a guy you want to marry what do you want to, what do you want to do what, what, are you, what are you looking at okay there's a lot of things you could ask some of them good some of them bad okay um find a guy who loves the lord jesus and whose love for the lord jesus has brought his life under control right a cute guy who says he loves Jesus, who's all your romantic dreams, okay, and who cannot master his impulses is not someone you want to marry, right? I'll say, and I, I, love, uh, I love Tim Keller. He wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage. Every person in this room should read it. It's the best book on marriage there is. Um, it's written for, he, he, wrote, he wrote the book out of a series of sermons that were delivered to a congregation of 80% single people, okay? So it's for you guys, right? But here's what he says. He says, uh, if you're a Westerner and you're American, then almost certainly... It is going to be hard to find someone who meets all of your desires because your desires are impossible. <laughs> that you have, uh, you have this really difficult grid to ma- mix. You have the Christian things you should want, and then you have all the Disney movies you watched when you were a kid, right? Or all the, all the romantic comedies or friends or whatever, okay? You've got all this stuff together. You, you can never get everything you want because a lot of your desires are not uh, sane. I've been there. I was there, okay? Uh, but I, what I would encourage you, girls, and I'll say this to guys in a second, but you can find a guy who likes you and whose love for Jesus has brought him under control, you should marry him. All right? Look for that. Don't look for all the other stuff. All right. So, girls, the instructions go on. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. It's not slanderers or slaves to much wine. All right, so just notice uh, it appears that Paul is applying this seriousness and sobriety that all Christians should have to the particular lives of women in first century Crete, okay? Uh, who, now, I'll just take a survey of the class real quick. Who here thinks that typically, typically, girls are better 
at communicating and talking. Right? Who would agree? Every, okay. They are. They're so much better. Okay. All right. Um, I. I mean, guys, just if if you could record conversations with my wife. Okay. Anyways, but um, uh, but. I think that's a God-given thing. There's nowhere in the Bible that says that, okay? But I think it's God-given. Typically, women are better with their words. But notice uh, that natural gift can be used for good or evil. I think being really good with your words can be, can be very tempting to slander or gossip, which is simply just speaking poorly about someone else. And so Paul, I think, takes this call to self-control and sobriety and seriousness and applies it to a particular strength or weakness that uh, girls may or may not have, how they use their tongues. All right, notice the second thing the women are to do are to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So notice this, uh, the older women are to teach and instruct the younger women, um, and they obviously cannot teach and instruct things they don't have themselves, right? This is a picture of Godly womanhood, godly femininity, if I can say that correctly. Um, but notice, notice what's here. I think, um, again, I think Paul is applying what he said about the men, okay, to the particular lives of women in first century Crete. Notice how he applies uh, sobriety and soundness to life in the home, okay? Oh, my gosh, we just got offensive, all right? I'm getting out of here. Don't talk to me about that, okay? All right. Um, let me just walk through this really quickly. Having, uh, so love, love your husbands and children, all right? There is nothing like a grumpy husband and whiny, needy children to stretch your love for people, okay? Just walk into any home there is, all right? To be self-controlled and pure and working at home. Uh, just notice this working at home. This is kind of a key phrase here. There's a lot of interpretation about this. It does not mean that married women can't work. Okay, I don't think that. That's, a, that's from 1920s America. It's not from the scriptures. Actually, uh, this, uh, this word uh, indicates industriousness. Um, it gives the idea of her life is productive in industriousness. Or industrious. There we go. Okay, industrious. She's not spending her one God-given life just pursuing her pleasures. She's, she's, she's doing stuff. Uh, notice, uh, if you guys ever heard the phrase, the Proverbs 31 woman, right? If, you've, if, you've ra- if you're raised in the church, you hear that all the time, right? And uh, there's this passage in Proverbs at the very end that talks about what a godly woman is. And uh, I just encourage you guys, especially, as you're looking for potential spouses, to go read this because it's very uh, countercultural. What's so great about a Proverbs 31 woman? She gets up early, she works all day, she goes to bed late. That's basically it. There's other stuff in there, all right? But she, she spends her life being productive for the sake of others. So, guys, again, in a culture where you were raised on the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition, right, and a culture that says that charm is the only thing that's important, that personality, chemistry has got to be great, okay? If you find a woman who loves Jesus and who puts up with you, all right, and who has a productive, industrious life, you should marry her. Value what God values, right? Okay, and girls, there's a challenge for you here, too, that's a little more dicey. Um, the phrase working at home does not mean that you can't work outside the home, obviously. But I think it does mean that there is a sense in which once a woman gets married and has children, the home is her primary calling. Not her only calling, 
okay? Right? It's not, it's not 1950s America, okay? But it's her primary calling, all right? Women, w- godly women embrace the home. They embrace the idea that, that they're the primary one, not the only ones, okay? Don't marry a selfish guy who's going to treat you like his house servant, okay? But um, don't, don't, don't be a housewife only, right? But, but the idea here is godliness, okay, against everything our culture says, all right? Godliness embraces a calling to the home, a calling to children. And uh, we, uh, we live in a very Molech culture. I don't know if you guys know who Molech was. He was an Old Testament god, a pagan god who required child sacrifice, okay? Uh, he demanded that people sacrifice their children um, in order uh, to have his favor. And guys, we, we live in a culture that very much does that, right? Um, we, uh, we sacrifice our kids. Maybe our Molech is convenience, right? Most people are like, man, I'll get married and I'll have kids when I'm, you know, 35 or 40, right? Like, I'm, I'm going to wait 10 years. Got to have my life first. Got to have my marriage first. I just want to encourage you guys. What godliness looks like, all right, is embracing the family, when that comes. Now, of course, of course, some of you are in here and you're like, well, Leland, I want that, you know, like, give me a, give me a, I, I want that. Like, what's, just be patient, trust the Lord, walk with him. It's good that you want that. Okay. But again, um, godly womanhood embraces the home. There's a third group here that we will, uh, we'll talk about, not get too caught up in verse nine. Uh, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, but not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This word bondservants refers to people who, in first century Rome, were captives of war. Primarily, they were captives of war who were enslaved. Some of them could buy, buy, buy their way out of their slavery. Some of them couldn't. Okay, so uh, this institution is not the horrific American institution of slavery where we systematically enslaved an entire race of people. It's different. It looks maybe a little bit similarly, but it's different. Captives of war, all right? Um, Rome's going out conquering people, bringing the captives, all right, making them slaves. But they're still, it's still unjust. It's still wrong, right? Um, But notice, I think this passage gives some great advice and a lot of hope to people in the worst possible situations. Okay, just imagine... You're a bondservant in Rome. You have zero possibility of economic success. Your entire life is dictated to you, right? You, know, you, can't, even, you can't even get married without your master's permission, right? And uh, there's no hope. If you try to rebel, you will be killed. That's how it worked in Rome. Slave, slave rebellions got killed, okay? So Paul, I think Paul's wise here. He's not, he's not saying, I don't, I don't think he's approving of the institution. He's not saying it's okay. But he's saying, hey, listen, if you're stuck in it, if you're in a bad circumstance, if you're being unjustly treated, here's how you can honor the Lord. And he just says that they are to be good servants. They're to honor their masters. They're not to argue. They're to well-please. They're not to, they're not to steal. And then look at this key phrase in verse 10. They're showing all good faith, at the very end, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Notice this, somebody at the bottom of the totem pole can adorn the gospel. This word means to make beautiful. Um, a, a, a servant's life, a slave's life even, can make the gospel of Jesus look glorious. It can do the most significant, dignified thing there is to do. 
to bring the reality of God to bear on people's lives. And so this morning, just briefly, all right, if you accomplish zero of your dreams, right, if you don't get anything you want out of life, if your life is, as one Disney character put it, a series of doors in my face, if that's what your life is like for, for the next 60 years and then you die, none of your dreams accomplished, okay, you can still do the most important and profound and soul-filling thing there is. You can adorn the gospel of Jesus with your life. That will bring significance to wherever you're at. Okay, that's the what? That's the godliness. It looks a little bit different depending on where you are in life. But the idea here is wherever you are, practically, God wants you to aim there. You know where to start, okay? But why, all right? Why is important? Um, to do th- these, these changes will be hard, all right? Imitating this in our culture will be very difficult. Um, and oftentimes, to obey, we need a why. We need a good, uh, here's why you do this. I remember when I was a new Christian, like almost every new Christian does, I really, really struggled to spend uh, consistent time with the Lord, to make time to be with the Lord. And I remember I was reading a book uh, by John Piper called Desiring God. And he, his whole thesis of the book is God is most honored when we are most happy or satisfied in him. And he was starting to talk about uh, time in the scriptures. And what he said was, is that uh, your daily time with the Lord, right, is one of the most important keys to your happiness in the Lord. And uh, just like a light bulb went off. Like, why in the world should I give up an extra hour before work to spend time with Jesus so I can be happy, right? The one thing that I, like, I'm going to spend my whole life doing, right, trying to be happy, that got connected to me opening my Bible and spending time with Jesus. And all of a sudden, I'm not saying it was perfect, right? Everybody still struggles with devotions. But there was a great change in my life once I figured out the why. So I think uh, Paul gives us a really good why um, for growing in godliness, Look at uh, verse 11. Four. And again, that four. Anytime you see the word four in the Bible, it means this is supporting the stuff above. This is the reason why for all these commands. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So notice, why should you grow in your self-control? Why should you embrace the kind of life God has for you? Why should you seek to adorn the gospel in a bad situation? Because God's grace has appeared. And again, this word grace just means God's love for sinners, his unmerited favor for evil people. And that that, uh, phrase has appeared, that means that it's appeared once for all in the person of Jesus. It's come to, to the earth in Christ. Right, And notice, uh, this grace first, it brings salvation for all people. The idea there is that it, it brings salvation for all kinds of people. doesn't matter what race you are. doesn't matter your status in life. doesn't matter your past, where you've been. doesn't matter your present. All you have to do is come to Jesus and receive his grace. The grace of God brings salvation. If you're in this room this morning and maybe you are pretty new, you're checking out Christianity, or maybe you've been in the church for a long time and you, have, you still have zero love for Christ. All you have to do is come. God's grace will bring salvation into your life. 
But notice the tension. The grace that brings salvation also trains us to live godly lives. Look at verse 12. The grace of God training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. God's grace, his favor, his love, his kindness to us, it saves us and it trains us. The same grace that makes you 100% right with Jesus right where you are no matter where you've been, that same grace will not leave you there. It will change you. That's the reason why. That's why you pursue obedience. That's why you grow in these qualities. Because the same grace that put Jesus on the cross and, put, and will put you in heaven if you trust him trains you presently to bring yourself under control, to live an upright, godly life, to renounce the ungodly passions you have. And notice, uh, it's not just God's grace in general, but, but Jesus' personal intent on the cross. Look at verse 14, describing our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul says, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. When Jesus was on the cross, when he was suffering and pouring his life out, bearing God's wrath, what is he thinking about? He's thinking about you as a purchased, new, godly person. He died not just to save you from the consequences of sin, but from the presence of sin. He died to purchase you, to cleanse you, to make you someone who's so freed from living for yourself that you can be zealous for good works. That's the why. Jesus died to make us not just righteous before God, but righteous in this life as well. So, just an application really briefly. Um, as you pursue godliness, right, the main reason and the main power for your pursuit of godliness is the grace of God. You're not, guys, when I talk about self-control, I don't mean the kind of self-control a Navy SEAL has, right? Just pull up your bootstraps, work harder. That's not what we're talking about, okay? It, it's a, it's a self-control produced by God's grace. Uh, John Owen, uh, he was a Puritan, late 1700s. He said that the key to growing in the Christian life is to trust in the cross of Jesus, first, as what delivers you from sin, but second, as the power over your present sin. Think about that. Right? You're tempted. You go home tonight. You're alone. You're tempted to despair or to be, or to be grumpy where God has you in life or to, to sin in your purity, right? And your first thought is, oh, gosh, i got to stop. No, no, no. Your first thought is, Jesus has purchased power for me over this. That's what it looks like to grow. All right, finally, so we've got the what, we've got the why. We'll spend a few minutes talking about the how. Um, notice this passage is framed, it begins and ends with teaching. Look at verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, this is Titus, he's going to lead the church, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is just healthy doctrine. Teach it. Teach the gospel. Verse uh, 15 says, Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The idea here is we're, we're still teaching. We're still talking about Jesus. But now we're putting some 
some, uh, some cut into it. We're exhorting people to change. We're declaring the truth. So notice, one of the primary means that Paul has for Christians growing in godliness is the teaching of the word. Just real briefly, an application. Why do we spend so much time in the Bible here at East Cooper? Right? Why do I spend 45 minutes every Sunday with the scriptures open? Why does Buster do the same? Right? Because God has ordained right, that public teaching of the word received with humble hearts through people full of the spirit. That is one of the primary ways has, God has for you to change. Um, but I will say, uh, just an application, um, I would really encourage you to approach Sundays intentionally. Sometimes it's like we just roll in here and we're like, oh, whew, I'm a good Christian. I made it, right? We haven't spent any time with the Lord. We were up way too late last night, right? We're not thinking about anything God tells us. We haven't prayed once that God would work in our lives through the teaching. We're just like, whew, it's like the dust is coming up behind us as we get in here, right? Um, we're like, phew, I'm only 15 to 20 minutes late today. Like, right, I'm, I'm doing great, you know? And, uh, and guys, guys, the reason, okay, and again, I, this, is, this might get in your grill. The reason you're late is because you don't care that much, okay? The reason you're distracted and you're tired is because you don't care that much. Now, some of you guys might have worked late last night. That's not you. Okay? I'm, not, I'm talking to you. But if you stayed up late last night watching a great movie on that third Netflix episode, whatever, okay, you just don't care that much. That's the reason, right? And the scriptures say, man, the teaching of the word received with people who are awake, who care, who've prayed over it, right? That is one of God's primary means to change us. So take it seriously. But notice it's not just the uh, formal upfront pastor teaching the whole congregation. There's also informal teaching. There's modeling. Look at verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. Sorry, I skipped that part. In uh, verse 3, they are to teach what is good and to so train the young women. Now, uh, I believe there's, there's definitely a place for women up front teaching other women in the church. I think this teaching in here is probably um, like informal. Like, look, how are you going to teach someone to love their, their, their husbands and children? You're probably going to show them how to do it, right? Like, little kids are complicated. Marriages are messy. Learning how to walk faithfully takes modeling. Uh, specifically, though, look at uh, verse 7. After being uh, told to urge the younger men to be self-controlled, Paul tells Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. So Titus, is the older women are supposed to be models to the younger women, and Titus is supposed to be a model to the men. The idea here is that you don't just need um, words about what godliness looks like. You need a picture of godliness in people's lives. That's another means of grace for you. Um, so I would encourage you, um, find models of good works in your life. Seek out mentors. I want to be careful saying that. Um, what I'm not saying is that I believe East Cooper should get a mentorship program and you just go online, you register, and like someone just shows up at your door, you know? Kind of like uh, people delivering groceries or something. No, um, I think it's going to be much more informal with than that. I think if you want to find a model or a mentor or someone to be good works, you need to initiate that. You need to seek them out. There are great ways to do that here. You can join a multi-generational community group. You can be around older Christians. It's great. You can seek out people, bend your schedule to theirs. Right? If you want a model, I'd encourage you to, to seek out one, to be willing. All right, so God's ordained the public teaching of the word and the personal one-on-one -on -one modeling of the word 
to be one of the main ways you practically grow in godliness. So in conclusion, uh, I found in life that I can handle a little bit of tension if I have some clarity, you know. Um, I can handle a yard project as long as I don't have to do one of those terrible instruction manuals, right? Um, I can experience a messy situation, something that's difficult, if I can see someone else do it before me. And um, the wonderful thing about this passage is though there is a lot of tension and even some mystery in the Christian life, particularly in the relationship between God's grace and our godliness, there's a lot of clarity and simplicity too. It is very, this morning, okay, it is very clear, like a sign in the sky of what Jesus wants from your life right now. Right where you are, right? It's very clear. He wants you to grow in these qualities. It's right here, okay? And he's shown you how, right? The teaching of the word, modeling around you, right? And he's given you the gospel as your great reason why. So, um, even though it's going to be messy, it's clear. So, with the power of the gospel, go adorn it with your life. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we, we just plead for that, that miracle you do. Um, where you, by grace, not by guilt or by fear, but by grace, you teach us to renounce ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright lives. I just pray that this group would be characterized by godly, upright, under-control living. We pray you'd be gracious to us in that. We pray you'd help us to make practical changes um, as we look to Jesus in his name.